you have your Bibles with you, please open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As I was thinking through uh, my sermon this week and thinking through this particular text as it, it relates to what we've gathered here to do, uh, a quote came to mind uh, that I thought was very appropriate. Uh, many of you are probably assuming that this is going to be a quote from The Office or from Seinfeld uh, or from some Coen Brothers movie, and, and you would be right to assume that, but you are wrong. Uh, it's actually from a president, uh, and I will read the entirety of his speech to us this morning because it's important. Um, it is the Gettysburg Address. Now, when I was a kid, I had heard the Gettysburg Address, and I think that I had even memorized it at one point in time. It's pretty short. Um, and I was always told that it's a really important speech. It's one of the best speeches we have records of, right? And we are told not only is this speech important in, in American history, but it's important just because it is, it is one of the greatest speeches known to mankind. And I remember hearing that and then hearing the thing and thinking, all right, like I... I don't really know why this is so great. I think I have a better understanding of that now. Lincoln writes, or Lincoln says, I suppose he wrote it at some point in time, but we have it written now. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met and a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate and we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to do, to add or to detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus so far nobly advanced. It is rather excuse me, it is rather for us here to be dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Today, we have come here for something like that. The Brubakers are still living, thankfully, so we don't have to worry about that. But we have come here for something like that. We are commissioning them, we are dedicating them to their work in China. We've come together this morning to hear as God's word is applied to them and to their lives. It is fitting and proper that we do this. They are leaving for China soon. Uh, we don't know exactly when, but soon. Uh, sometime in 2019, we hope. Uh, or we, that sounds bad, but nevertheless, we want, we want you to go. It's sometimes we don't have a date for that yet, but as they are doing that, they are a major part of this church. It is good and fitting that we send them away with the prayers of the saints ringing in their ears. And so we're dedicating them today. But like Lincoln said, that battlefield was commissioned and was dedicated not by him saying a, a few words, kind words, nice words. It, it wouldn't be dedicated by the prayers of the people who might have been there. It was dedicated by the people and the blood that was spilled for them. 
They were not dedicating the field, but rather the field was dedicating them to the task of carrying on the mission for which that blood was spilt. So today, we're not really commissioning the brewbakers. We believe that the Spirit has done that. We believe the Spirit has set them aside for what they're doing. We know this because they're not going simply so that Doug can have a career opportunity. Um, it's not a, a nice way to show Alice in the world and other cultures, although that might be an added benefit. They're not going so that they can gain an interest in any sort of financial mode. They are going simply because they want to honor God with their lives. When I was thinking through this, I thought about Doug and I thought about, um, sounds bad, the dishonest manager of Luke 16. Again, you can, take, you can take all of this, you can take all of this r- the wrong way. So I, I thought about the dishonest manager. So this manager knows he's going to get canned. The, the master is going to come back and he is going to fire him. And so what this manager does is he goes to all the people who owe wheat and oil to his master. And he says, listen, how much do you owe, man? You owe 100, tell you what, write down 50. And how much do you owe, you owe you know, 100 barrels of wheat? Write down 80. And, and he lowers all of their burdens so that when he get, gets canned, which he's going to do regardless, he might have a place to go. Jesus ends that parable by saying this, the master who was cheated praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. The reason why that reminds me of Doug is, the opportunity that is given to them is using the means of the world to support them while they are doing missions work overseas. They are helping strengthening connections for us in China. They are going to hopefully be witnessing to people in China, strengthening churches in China. They are doing missions work in China, but they are doing it not through the giving of God's people, but through Doug's own employment as a secular engineer. That is shrewd. So we are not commissioning them. The Spirit has done that. He has set them aside. He has moved in their hearts and their minds to take on this task. We are commissioning them in a sense, but we are also commissioning ourselves in a sense as a church to pray for them, to have the same mind as they do in Christ, to be engaged in the same devotion to the kingdom of Christ as they are. To highlight this then, let us turn to 2 Corinthians 5. And I will begin reading in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of our Lord. The book of 2 Corinthians is a fantastic book. It is filled with difficult passages. It is filled with interesting uh, ideas and, and things for us to think through in light of what Christ has done for us. But alas, we don't have time for all of that. The main theme in 2 Corinthians is simple. Paul having been reconciled to God, the Corinthians apparently having been reconciled to God, is now trying to reconcile the Corinthians to himself. They do not want to see him as a true and living apostle. They would rather see these other very flashy people as living apostles, as the ones who really are carrying forward the work of God. And Paul says, no, I am an apostle who suffers. I am the apostle who trips over his words. I am the apostle who preaches only the basic messages of Jesus Christ, reconciling the world to God. That is what an apostle looks like. And so Paul's efforts are to get the Corinthians on his side as he moves forward in mission. He does not want the Corinthians to latch themselves onto flashy, glitter-ridden ministries that are prone to the desire of the world, but rather to a ministry based on the word of the gospel fueled by patient devotion and suffering. Now, I... I'm drawing connections here between Paul and the Brubakers and us and the Corinthians. I do not think that as a church we are as far away from the New Testament as the Corinthians might have been, nor do I necessarily think the Brubakers are as close to Paul as they would like to be. We're not saying that they are Paul and we are the Corinthians. We're not saying that they will achieve the goals that Paul had set for himself. But that is why we pray so that they might be more like Paul as they go out into the world, so that they might take upon themselves the goals that Paul has set, and so that we might come alongside them as Paul wished the Corinthians would have done. So, today let us pray first that the Brubakers might be our pride in Christ. They might be our pride in Christ. 5.10 very first verse or the verse right before our passage today Paul talks about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ in verse 11 then he says knowing the fear of the Lord we know the fear of the Lord we have appeared before the judgment seat of Christ we we know what that means those who are forgiven know best what it means to face the judgment of God We know because we know the tremendous debt that we carry before God. We know what has been forgiven us. And because we know what's been forgiven us, we know a fear of God's judgment better than people who don't understand the judgment that is coming to them. So because he knows that fear, what does he say? We persuade others. We know best We know best what it means to stand before the judgment of God. And so we would persuade others. And he says, both at the beginning of our passage and at the end of our passage, we persuade others. What did he persuade them to? Be reconciled to God. He will not have people standing aside from God. He will not think that that is okay because he knows the judgment of the Lord that is coming. And so he resolves to always persuade them to be reconciled to God. 
He says, not only does he proclaim that they should be reconciled to God, but more than that, he already is known to God. It's not like he is a, a naughty boy who's waiting for dad to come home, right? Like your mom looked at you when you were a kid and said, okay, man, wait till dad gets home. And you have a fear of your father when he comes home. Paul says, that's not what's going on. Everything about us, all of the wrongs, all the weaknesses, all the sin is already known to God. It's already been manifested to God. We have already passed through judgment, even if we understand that there is still a judgment awaiting us. In Christ, we have gone through. We are already known to God. And he says, I also hope that it is known to your conscience. That is not just the sin and the weakness, but that judgment is known to them. And he has confidence in that judgment because he knows of the work of the Spirit in his own life. Paul understands that God has already worked through him. He understands that God has given him new birth. He understands the freedom that comes with the forgiveness of sins that God has lavished on him by the Spirit. He says, you should know that as well. But what are they intent on doing? They always look on the outward appearance. As he says in verse 12, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. It's very easy to boast about the outward appearance of things. It's very easy to boast about the things that we see with our eyes. Churches claim that they do many things well. Claim that they have great concert-like musical performances, that their, their preachers are funny, and they're practical in their wisdom. They have life-altering sermons. They boast of fun and energetic youth programs. None of those things are necessarily wrong. There's nothing wrong with being a great musician and playing your instrument and doing what you can do best for the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with having good preaching. There's nothing wrong with having good ministries. But many of those things are nothing more than Sunday morning veneers for these places. They are things that you put on on Sunday morning but disappear in the rest of the week. They're like a strange flower that will only bloom on that morning but in the cold light of Monday, withers and dies. Our boast should not be on the outward appearance of things. We ought not boast in anything that is simply the outward appearance of things, but we boast in what is true and right in the heart, evidenced by lives that are not lived by superficial things, but are lived by patient and devoted obedience, things that occur amongst life, not just what happens in a day, but what happens over weeks and years. The Brubakers, we have a boast before God. Not for our salvation, but a boast in what Christ is doing amongst us. Because he has worked in them to lead them to this place. He has worked in them to build them, to encourage them, to mature them to a place where this is not only possible, but it's an option for them. They would not have thought about this 10 years ago. It is a work that God is doing. And we see that it's not superficial because there's no way you can up and move your family to China and call that superficial. I, I don't know what you might want to label that as, but superficial it ain't. It shows a deep and abiding work of Christ in their lives. It shows that their hearts are built and bent upon glorifying God in their lives. That should be our boast. But it is not, and I need to implore you on this, and if I don't, Doug will hurt me after the service. I do mean that. If I have bruises next week, please see Pastor Doug. Okay? He's already threatened me once today. He'll do it. 
we're not boasting in the brewbakers, but we are boasting in the work that Christ has done in them. So should it be for all of us. As we are being commissioned along with them, we don't just see the work that God has done in them. We pray that God might do the same for the rest of us that we might boast of the work that God is doing around us, that we would be more devoted to the things of God in mission, that we would be more devoted to the giving of our tithes and offerings, more of our time, more of our calendar, more of our abilities given over to do the ministries that God has placed before us for his glory and honor, so that we might boast not in the appearance of godliness, but in the true and abiding nature of godliness that lies within us through the work of the Spirit of God. Pray that the brewbakers might be our pride in Christ. Secondly, pray that the brewbakers might be propelled by Christ. And they might be propelled by Christ. Paul says, if we are out of our minds, if we are beside ourselves, and what he means there is, if we're acting like we're crazy, it's because of God. It's for God. So, and there are many people who would look at what the brewbakers are doing and they would say that you are crazy. You're out of your mind. This doesn't make any sense. So, and they're leaving comforts of America. They're leaving family. They're leaving a job. They're leaving school. They're leaving people they love, some they tolerate. And they're not even doing it for money, they're not doing it for a promotion. They're not doing it for international exposure to the world. They're not doing it for any of those reasons. Those are the reasons maybe you, you do those things. Maybe somebody in the world would up and move their family to China for money or for a promotion or so that their child might experience another culture while they're living in that culture. Those are all reasons why the people of the world do that. What other reason could there possibly be for not doing that? That is insane. But Paul says, we act like we're crazy and we do things that you think are crazy, but we are not crazy. We are in our right minds. And so let me explain, he says, how we are in our right minds. We are in our right minds for you, for, he says in verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. It guides them. It propels him forward. Why does Paul brag, as he will later on in Second Corinthians, about his sufferings? Why does he go from town to town, continually being beaten and mocked and ridiculed, spat at and rejected? Everywhere he turns, he is a laughing stock. He is a punching bag. It seems stupid. Paul, you probably should just pack that in and call it a day, man. But he doesn't do that. He says, I am, I am propelled. It seems crazy, but I am propelled by the love of Christ. He says, Christ has died so that those who have died in Christ have also died to themselves. We're not motivated by selfish motivations like promotion or money or experience, but we are now motivated by the very love of Christ so that we would live not by our own selfish desires, but for the excellency of the one who died and was raised to life again. And that little phrase, the love of Christ, is beautifully vague. It means the love that we have for Christ. It means the love the brewbakers have for Christ. They are going to China so that they might extol the excellencies of Christ. So that they would get others to know the greatness and the grandness of Jesus Christ and the beauty and the glory of what he has done for them. But it is also the love that Christ has not only for them, but for the people who are in China who do not know him. 
It is the love that Christ has for others that also motivate them to go out. It motivates Paul to go out. There are many people here, he has heard said more than once, who are my people who do not know my name. There are people in China who will know the name of the Lord, we pray, through the work of the Brubakers. So the love of Christ propels them forward. So, we should pray that the Brubakers keep that motivation always. It will be easy to lose. Doug and his shrewdness has taken a job there, but that job will require something out of him. They're not just moving him there for free. They actually do want him to do things. And it is not an easy job. It will demand much out of him, and it will be very easy for him to fall back into an easy mode of life, work, sleep, be with his family, work, sleep, be with his family. Tracy and Allison have school to attend to. There will be plenty of adjustments that need to be made in their personal lives. There will be unforeseen day-to-day problems that we couldn't even think of now that when they go there, they'll be like, of course this is a problem. I know nothing about this culture nor the language. Doing simple tasks will be much more difficult. Going to the market and buying food for the fridge will be much more difficult. Everything will be difficult because they will be dealing with a culture that is so different from ours, with a language they don't understand, and all of this, distractions and the day-to-day problems will be easy. It will be very easy for them to forget what has propelled them there in the first place. And it'll be very easy for this to become a working-out-the-clock type situation. Two and a half years, three years is fast. So let's pray for them that they remember and they keep that motivation that Christ might remain standing as firmly fixed in the center of their lives, that they would be constantly reminded of why they are there, not simply counting down the days to their return, but making every day that they are there count for their return. More than that, this should be our motivation as well. As the Corinthians are to come along, Paul, This should be our motivation as well. We too have died in Christ. We too are not to live for ourselves, but the one who died and was risen again. We too ought to be people who go out and are motivated, compelled by the love of Christ, both the love that we have for him to make him known and the love we have for others to allow them to know the beauty and the generosity and the grace of Jesus Christ. We also ought to be compelled by the love of Christ The love of Christ, therefore, should propel us to pray for the brewbakers, should propel us to have a heart for the nations. It should propel us to have a heart for our neighbors and propel us to give freely of ourselves for his people and his kingdom. Third, let's pray that the brewbakers might be perceptive of Christ. Pray that they might be perceptive of Christ. In verse 16, Paul says, We regard no one according to the flesh, For even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. It's a somewhat confusing way of putting it. I think the best way to understand this, it's been understood in many ways throughout church history, the best way to understand this is simply to understand what Christ has accomplished in his flesh. It's very easy to look at the life of Jesus Christ and to come up with ways to speak about what he has done that are evident and obvious to the eyes. We can speak of his grand teaching, his psychological insights, his moral vigor, his compassion. We could even speak of his miracles like this. 
He walked on water, visibly, evidently, walked on water, multiplied loaves and fish, healed hands that had been withered since birth, brought blindness out of somebody who was born that way. We can see these things about Christ. These are things that if a sociologist were there, he would write them down. Paul says, but we don't think about Christ according to the flesh, according to what we can see anymore. What would we make of the cross? It was just about the things that we could see. Maybe it's that Christ clearly loves people and he gives himself for them, somehow sacrificing himself for them. Don't know exactly how that might work, but maybe it's simply a love for the truth. Maybe it's something of his passion, a willingness to die for convictions. Maybe it's a hope that he was willing to allow the crucifixion to happen because he believed that God would do all good things and make all things right in the end. Maybe it's just an example And in all of this, Christ is our example to follow in faith and in love and in truth. Listen, I'm not making light of those things. All of those things are true. And we would do well to pay better attention to all of those things. Christ is an example for how we are to live our lives. He is an example for the type of devotion we are supposed to have. He is an example of the type of love we are supposed to have. Paul himself draws out all of those things. But he says we cannot only understand Christ in light of what we can see with our eyes. Notice what he talks about here. He says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's actually way more difficult than that. Probably more accurately is interpreted as something along the lines of, If anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's very abrupt, very abbreviated. The resurrection of Christ is a new creation. It isn't just raising a man back to living this flesh and blood life that you and I live. It's a whole new level of existence. It's a totally different way of living than we have ever lived before and that we will one day experience in our resurrection. It is something bigger and larger and grander than anything that you could understand with your eyes. There is a brand new creation that is going on in Christ as we speak. And so anyone who is found in him also experiences that new creation in a way that we cannot see and understand. He says, therefore, because if anyone is in him, there is a new creation. Therefore, we cannot understand anyone simply according to the flesh anymore. We can't simply look upon them as what we can tell by looking at them with our eyes. But they are a completely and totally new creation. In a sense, Christ's death then is the end of the world and his life is the beginning of another Imagine for a second what it would be like to be at creation, to stand on the earth while God is bringing up vegetation for the first time and you watch a flower bloom. You're not just watching. You're not just watching a flower open like you can any spring day. You are watching creation happen and unfold before you. That is what is happening when somebody comes to know the Lord. You are watching God remaking the world. So if we can't view Christ according to the flesh, we can't view anyone else according to the flesh. We must look at people. We must look at people beyond simply what they are on the outside. Doug and Tracy, this is going to be very easy for you just to walk around and see Chinese people. There will be Chinese people there and there will be many of them and you're going to see them. Their language is not going to be yours. There is a culture there that's not yours. Their problems will likely be wholly different than yours. There will be food there. It won't be yours. 
And you can see all that's going on around you only in terms of how they are distinct from you, how they are different from you, how they look on the outside compared to how you look on the outside. But you cannot see them that way. They're not just people. They are those who will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who will be new creations. They're possibly adopted brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not see them in light of the things that you can see with your eyes and hear with their ears, but see them in the light of the risen Christ who has ushered in a new creation. See them in the light of eternity. So friends, we also then ought to pray for Doug and Tracy. Pray that they see the Chinese people not simply as Chinese, but as the object of God's love for them in Christ, as people who can be renewed and redeemed in a new creation, where languages and tongues and tribes and nations all blend into one as people for the risen Lamb. Pray that they continually have a vision of people, not simply as Chinese, but people who might be one day sons and daughters of the living God, new creations forged from the beginning of time. Friends, pray for us as well. Pray that we see others around us this way. Not as people who simply cut you off in traffic. Not simply as people who give you your coffee. Not simply as people who you work with. But as people who have in Christ the opportunity to become something wholly glorious. Not simply people who walk around and act better. Who speak without swearing. And who nod and smile when things are done kindly to them but people who will one day be overflowing with the glory and the power and the majesty of God. Be perceptive of Christ. Fourthly, let us pray that the Brubakers might be proclaimers for Christ. Paul says, all this is from God. Let's be very clear, the Brubakers cannot do this on their own. We cannot do this on our own. Paul says very clearly he could not do this on our own. All of this is from God. He reconciled you and gave you the ministry of reconciliation. Notice what he says. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, there are many people who might think that Paul is only talking about the apostles or Paul is talking about the missionaries who travel around with him. This is not true. This is talking about everyone. If you have been reconciled, that and is a conjunction. It means everything here goes together. God has given you twofold things. He has given you reconciliation. He has re- reconciled him and you together. You can now call him father because he was not your father. Christ has made it possible for him to be your father. You can know him through grace and mercy and not just through judgment and wrath. You do not need to know him as God, the judge of all the earth, but God, the judge of all the earth, who is your Abba, Father, because of the work that Christ has done. He has reconciled you. But what's more, when he reconciles you, he also gives you, each and every one of you, the ministry of reconciliation. As we talked for a long time, about the nature of how the Bible ought to be read. And the one theme that permeates all of Scripture is the theme of kingdom. God is a king who rules over his people. And we in our sin have done nothing but been traitorous to that. 
We are wretched and filthy before him. We are traitorous and we are due for the gallows, but he has reconciled us to himself. Therefore, he is our king. And if he is our king, then we are to go and proclaim the excellencies of that king. We are to do the very things that God has sent for us to do, and that is no less than be a minister of reconciliation to the wider world. This reconciliation, Paul says here, that God does not count trespasses against the world. Romans 4, 5 through 8, quoting Psalm 32, says this, But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Just as David speaks also of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, David says, Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. God has every reason to charge every single person in here with grave and deep sin against him. We are all traitors to him. But through the work of Jesus Christ, he doesn't look at us as traitors, but as sons and daughters. Christ has reconciled God to us. Or, as Paul would say, he has reconciled us to God. But further, amazingly, and some might even claim stupidly, God has left this to us bumbling idiots to carry out the message of reconciliation to the world. He has entrusted this to us, not to visions that he would send to people, not to the voices of angels proclaiming, not simply to the Spirit working on a person apart from us and being convicted of their sin apart from any Christian taking them the gospel. God entrusts us with the mission of reconciliation. If he does not do it through us, if we do not go out, if we do not proclaim the gospel, there is no reconciliation understand that. There is not a miracle that happens somewhere where people are converted outside of other people from God's people taking the gospel to them. It doesn't happen. If we do not go out, there is no going out. Romans 10, 14 through 15, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? There is no reconciliation without us. God has ordained it to be that way. William Carey famously had a burden for the people in India. He got up in an associational meeting famously saying, I want to go to India. I want you all to support me. Am I going to India? Somebody in that meeting got up and said something along these lines. Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. In the back, Paul's hand shoots up and says, actually, that's not true at all. If God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will only do it through you and me. So, the brew bakers will implore others, as will we, be reconciled to God. The Chinese are not far away from God because they live in a communist country. They are not far away from God because they have a culture that isn't associated with Western Christian culture. They are not far away from God because they don't have white steeples. They are not far away from God because they don't have the history of Western tradition behind them. They are far away from God because they're sinful. Just like many in this room are far away from God because we are sinful. 
So we go to them as we go to people around here. Be reconciled to God. Paul then talks about how this reconciliation takes place. How are we made right with God? And very terse, very man, very pithy little verse in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Christ is taking up our identity. There is an exchange here, but it's an exchange in participation. Christ participates with us so that he can become sin. He doesn't become sinful, but he takes on the identity of sin so that God can take out the wrath and the anger that he has on sin on Jesus Christ. Jesus, who knows no sin, looks like sin. He feels like sin. He takes on the very nature of sin so that we might be pardoned. And in that exchange, we then participate with Christ in his righteousness. And notice how baldly Paul puts this. So baldly that if you said this in the wrong company, you could be accused of kind of going a little too far that in him we might be the righteousness of God. You are righteous, friends. Let that sink in. Those of you who are sinful, who have fallen away, who continue day after day after day to do things against God, and even if you do right things, if you do them for your own reasons and not because God on high has commanded you to do so, you are in sin. You are rebelling against his very rule. You can't even do good things right. You can only do things wrong, whether they're good or bad or otherwise. You only do them wrong, and everything that you do outside of faith is always bent against God. God looks at you. God looks at Paul, a murderer, a blasphemer, and an idolater, and says, no, no, you are the righteousness of God. It's true because God has done in Christ what he had always promised to do. God had made great, great promises to Abraham. God, even last week we talked about the very nature of God. He says, I am a merciful God. I forgive sins, but I will not hold the guilty unpunished. If God is going to be true to that word, he has to be true to it in people. If God is going to be righteous, he has to be true to that word. He has to both forgive people and hold them guilty. We then are the righteousness of God because we are the objects by which God upholds his very word. If not for us, there would be no righteousness of God. He couldn't just be righteous in Christ. He has to be righteous in us to forgive us and to uphold his own just laws. And so in Christ, we then become the very righteousness of God. We are the proof that God is righteous in all that he does, for he has forgiven us and he has judged us wrong in Christ. His judgment is true, but we are false. And he judges that in Christ. And what a magnificent salvation to proclaim. Brubakers, your task is simple. Make that proclamation as easy as possible. The church has been doing it for 2,000 years. Continue it. That's your task. Not only to learn how to pronounce the word reconciliation in Chinese, but then to proclaim it in Christ to those people, to get to know them. But it's more than that. You are sent as an ambassador, not just of Christ, but of our church, so that we might be helped and aided in our desire to announce the reconciliation of Christ to those Chinese people. Friends, we have before us then also a great task, a task which none of us is fully ready for or capable of, just like the brewbakers are not fully ready, nor are they capable of the task that God has placed before them. 
the brewbakers know better than anyone how limited they are and can now, and especially as the day approaches, feel the weight of the task pressing down upon them. But it is not given to them alone. Paul in the book of Galatians says that we are to bear one another's burdens. It is a weight that he has not given to us. Not all of us have been called to go to China. And so it is a burden that he has specifically placed on them. But because we are united with them as a church in fellowship by the blood of Jesus Christ, that is a weight that has therefore been placed on us as well. We are to bear the burden that is given to them in prayer, in devotion, to make sure that because they are leaving, we do not forget about them, but we continue to daily lift them up in prayer, to remember, to ask God for his strength to be upon them, for his strength to allow them to endure, for boldness in proclaiming the gospel, for doors to be open for that proclamation, for their eyes to be set fully and focused intently on Jesus Christ and on his glory in everything they do, whether that is engineering, whether that is teaching your daughter, whether that is meeting the people who are next to you, whether that is struggling through Chinese verb conjugation, whatever the case might be, you are doing it for the love of Christ. Pray for them that they might have that focus and that resilience. Pray then fervently that they might attain the goals set before them and to give us all encouragement to attain the same. Remember, today we're not just commissioning the brewbakers as some sort of special set of Christians, but we are all being commissioned. We are partners in the gospel with them. So let us rightly understand our pride in seeing the work of Christ among us today specifically manifested in the brewbakers. Let us be propelled by the love of Christ, perceptive to how God is working in the world and what his work is in the world, that we might rightly proclaim the excellencies of the God who has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Let us pray over the brewbakers. Would you come forward, please? you would pray with us. Father, how thankful we are for your work in the lives of Doug and Tracy and Allison. We are grateful, Father, that you have taken them and matured them, that you have encouraged them in the gospel to have hope and trust in your rule, that they might give their lives to you in such a way. We know, Father, that there will be difficult days ahead for them. There will be days when they feel lost. There will be days when they feel darkness upon them. There will be days when they feel stress and distrust. There will be days of sin and anger. And Father, we pray that you will see them through these. We have sung that Christ is a sure and steady anchor. We have every reason to believe that you will hold them fast.
through this time. But not just hold them fast, not just allow them to persevere, but allow them to flourish. That through the toils and the struggles, through the difficulties, we pray, Father, that you will work in them mightily. That you will see and show them your work in China. That you will give us great reasons to boast about the work that is being done there through them. That you will give us encouragement by the reports that they send back. That we will learn to be better devoted to your kingdom by them. That we will praise you and glorify you through them. Father, we pray that as they go out, they will be commissioned by your grace and in your spirit to do the work that you have sent for them. They know better than anyone in this room that this task will not be easy. But Father, they also know a good and gracious God who will strengthen them in all ways so that they can rightfully say they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning realizing again that you are a sovereign God, that this time and this place today did not take you by surprise, that before the time began, that you ordained that there would be a Doug and Tracy, Brubaker, Allison, and that you would put a call on their lives, Lord, uh, that uh, many would never know, but they would also be faithful and saying, here am I, send me. Lord, we ask your blessing upon them as they um, endeavor to serve you and to glorify you, Lord. Uh, may their work be fruitful, knowing that the Holy Spirit is leading and directing Lord, we know that the reason that they are here today is because of the gospel in their own hearts and lives. And we are humbled by it. But also, Lord, we see the charge that you give each one of us to continue to proclaim that gospel. And they have seriously taken that and are willing to travel halfway around the world, Lord, to people in a culture they do not know and to be your servants. We pray, Lord, that they do it faithfully. We pray, Lord, that in every detail, uh, your hand is upon it. We have already seen that and continue to work everything out, Lord, to your honor and glory. Be with them each and every day. Lord, as those here at Crossway, we thank you for the opportunity that they will be our eyes and ears on the mission field and we will firsthand know and see through them your work. May it encourage us, Lord, uh, that we see again um, the great responsibility that is not just here in the Tri-Cities, Lord, but around the world, that we can make an impact, Lord. May we be faithful to missions anew through them. Lord, allow us to support them daily. May we remember them on our knees, Lord, before you. May we be, again, your instruments, Lord, whether it's at Crossway or the Brewbakers in China, Lord, that we bring honor and glory to you because you are a God that is worthy. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.